Okay, open your Bibles if you would, Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 4. Last week, uh, we looked at the parable of the sower, or the parable of the soils, if, if you prefer, or the parable of the seed, if you prefer, and um, we, we found that the, that the message in that parable is pretty straightforward. The sower is a constant, the seed is a constant, the variable is the soil, us. And so the, the productivity is a, is, a, is a result or a product of how well the soil is conditioned, how well the soil is treated. It's not just a matter of, hey, somebody's got good soil or somebody's got bad soil. It's what's been done to that soil, what has conditioned that soil. And so we have a responsibility. He's always at work. The good news, the sower sows. When does the sower sow? Always. What's he sowing? His word, always. Right? The variable is us, though, and so we have a responsibility. So we're going to continue this morning in kind of that same theme uh, with a parable that I think some people maybe find a little bit more difficult to understand, but if looked at in the light of what we just talked about last week in terms of the sower and the soil, I think it's pretty clear. So Mark chapter 4, verse 21 and he, that's Jesus, was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a peck measure, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it should come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you, and more shall be given you besides. For whoever has to him shall more be given. Whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. As we look to it this morning, our prayer is that we would hear from you, Lord, that the soil of our heart, Father, conditioned um, this morning by worship, by gathering and fellowship and the discussion, Conditioned by prayer, Lord, our hearts would be open to you to hear what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. It's all about the formation of his character in us so that we can show his character to the world. That's what we're looking for. The sower sows the seed, his word, his character, his spirit in us so that we might reflect that. And we're talking about that same subject this morning, right? Uh, it's a parable in this section. Um, in fact, there's an awful lot in this section. It's, even though it's a short section, there's a parable, there's promises, uh, there's instructions, there's words of caution. There's an awful lot. And so let's just go through this section this morning. Uh, first, the parable. Uh, I think I noticed in passing last week, chapter 4 marks a sudden change in the way Jesus was ministering. There's no parables in Mark's gospel before chapter 4. Suddenly in chapter, at the end of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4, that's when he switches to parables. And some, excuse me, some significant things have happened that I think explain that too, in particular. One, the sides of the crowds are getting enormous. He's drawing crowds, if you'll recall from last week, from way outside the parameters of Israel. Crowds are getting really big. And opposition is getting real intense. Now it's not just the local rabbi that's questioning him. Now it's deputations being sent from Jerusalem. So the, 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 the priesthood in the temple in Jerusalem is getting involved with opposing what Jesus has done. And so the animosity is increasing, right? Well, what that creates, these large growing crowds and the increase 
of opposition is an increasing situation where those who are following Christ are going to have to make a decision. With the increasing crowds, it becomes easier and easier to, you know, stay on the fringes. Just kind of hang around and see what's going on. Maybe even be a little entertained a little bit. Maybe find some words of comfort and peace without making that heartfelt commitment that's necessary. And the pressure of opposition is making that heartfelt commitment all the more difficult. I frankly see a real strong parallel between the situation as it is at the end of Mark chapter 3 and what we face in our own country. I mean, you can argue back and forth whether or not America ever was a Christian country. I would argue that to the extent a country can be Christian, yes, it was. But there's no argument about it now. We have, we have left the underpinnings of Christian thought well behind. And those who would, who would live out our faith seriously do so in the face of a culture that is not in the slightest bit supportive of it, and even in opposition. So what's required is a, is a decision to be made, and a decision to be made daily, whether we will serve, whether we will follow, whether we will seek to be Christ-like in our world or something else. So I think it's a pretty similar situation that we're looking to. I think the parable really speaks to us. And it's a parable that itself is pretty straightforward. Jesus says, listen, it's simply incongruous to light a lamp and then, you know, stick it under a basket. Or light a lamp to stick it under a bed. Now, I know it has nothing to do with the parable. But I always, when I read that, have to laugh. I just, if not out loud, simply to myself. Did Jesus choose two examples that were flammable? I don't know, That's maybe that's important. The basket, you know, you put a, a candle under a basket, poof, right? You put a basket, a candle under a straw bed, poof. I don't think that has any bearing on that parable at all, but I just, I can't help but note it. But he makes the point that, no, you don't do that. It just doesn't make any sense. You take a candle or a lamp that you've lit, and you put it on a lampstand so it will illuminate the entire place. There's a dynamic here that I think would help us to understand that Jesus is here, was, or he came rather, not to conceal, but to reveal. And that's more than a catchy phrase. He came not to conceal, but to reveal. Because that doesn't necessarily mean a lot to us in our setting. But in the first century, that would have been extremely significant. And it helps us to take just a few minutes and kind of put ourselves into that first century audience to understand the importance of what Jesus was saying when he said, with regards to himself and the teaching that he was presenting, it's not a lamp that's been hidden away. It's a lamp on a lampstand. Because in the first century, for Jew and Gentile alike, mysticism and secrecy was a big part of religious practice. It was, it was common among the Jews as much as among the Gentiles. Among the Jewish people, there was something very prominent in the first century that was called Merkaba mysticism. It was well established by the end of the first century BC. It actually dated all the way back to the eighth century. And it was really caught up, uh, had its roots in, in Ezekiel's whole experience of the wheel within the wheel. Who's got that one figured out? I don't know. But all, that created a very mystic environment, right? The Qumran community that you may be familiar with, who were responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls. The group themselves were called the Essenes. A lot of what they did was very secretive, very mystic. Within the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a whole lot of material, not just, uh, not just you know, scrolls of the Old Testament. There's other material that you simply could not understand unless you were part of the community. A lot of inwardness, exclusiveness. 
Secretism and mysticism played a very large role. And of course, that was all accelerated by the fact they were an occupied country. When you're occupied by a foreign power, it's very convenient to be able to function in secret. You want to do things they don't know about. So even within Jewish culture, there was all of this secretism. And then, of course, within Greek and Roman culture, mysticism and, and secretiveness was not at all strange. Greek religion was famous for the liaison mysteries. The Romans had the Sibylline books, all of which talked about their history, their culture, who they were as a people in very secretive, spiritual, mystic. And the essence of all of this is if you're not in the inside crowd, you're never going to understand. And the only way to function well is to be in the inside crowd and to be um, a participant. And again, all of this mysticism and secrecy. Really good example of what we're talking about is in Acts 19.19 19, when Paul and his, and his fellows, uh, they come and they lead a magnificent outpouring of the Holy Spirit. People are getting saved in Ephesus. And what happens? They gather together all the magic books and they burn them. And the value was in the tens of thousands. What were those magic books? They were the secrets. They were the mysteries. They were the way by which people could operate, could function. If you wanted, the, the, the basic belief was there's all these powerful spiritual entities, and they're more powerful than we are, but we can influence them through the right combination of words and gestures and chemicals, the, the essence of sorcery. And these books contained all those secrets. But in coming to Christ, they abandoned that because Christ was about openness, about not exclusion but inclusion, inclusion in the finest sense of the word. So here in Mark, Jesus comes to the scene and he's all about bringing people in, excluding nowhere. His very purpose was to reveal. John says in his gospel, no one has seen God at any time, but the only son who's in the bosom of the father, he has made him known. The point of the parable, the point of the parable about the lamp, the lampstand, is to reassure Jesus' followers that ultimately it's all about light, bringing the truth to light, nothing to be a secret. And in verse 22, Jesus tells a, he tells a, he gives a promise that illustrates that. He says, for nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret except that it should come to the light. In the incarnation, light came in the person of Christ. And that light would continue to come and to continue to grow. The gospel was a gospel of revelation. Nothing secret, but that would be revealed. And he's, he's not so much talking about, you know, the secrets of an individual's personal life. New Testament talks about that, about living in darkness. But that's not the point here. The point here is in the person of Christ, saving truth, saving light was being revealed for anyone that wanted it completely free, no mystery handshakes, no dues, free to anyone that would have eternal life. Verse 23 carries, however, a challenge. It's a caution. It's something he had already said in verse 9, and he will say it repeatedly. He said, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. The parable of the sower was laying a foundation. Any of us have the soil in our hearts to respond. It's a question of what do we do with the soil? Do we prepare it? Is it? Has it been prepared to receive the word or not? 
It was the condition, not the nature of the soil, that was the determinant factor. People's response to the truth, truth is demonstrated in Christ, reveals the nature of their heart. So if anyone has ears to hear, Jesus says, now he's not talking about people who are physically deaf. That's not the issue. His point is simply to his crowd, to his audience, you all have ears, you all can hear me, you hear what I'm saying, what are you doing with it? It was to pose that single question, what are you doing? Let's talk a little bit about hearing. We've talked about this before. What an incredible thing human hearing is. How our body takes you know, sound wave energy and converts it to mechanical energy and converts it to nerve energy and it's thrown against this thing in our brain called the auditory map and you see where it sticks and you go, oh, that was a chicken or whatever, you know, whatever you heard. The brain is incredible in that regard. Hearing is a fascinating thing. But this is talking about hearing beyond that. The Greek word is akouo. It comes into English as acoustic. It's pretty easy to remember. It speaks first of the ability to hear, but more than that, it speaks of a willingness to respond. That's what he's talking about in this passage. If we have ears to hear, let's hear. If we have ears to hear, let's respond. It's all about human response. This is one of those really rare things, by the way, where the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New Testament perfectly sync. They're radically different languages. They're, at the very root, they're different. They're, the whole philosophy of the languages are different. But this is one of those rare cases where they absolutely sync. The idea of hearing and obedience. If you look at the Old Testament, for example, the foundation of the Old Testament is what we're Old Testament fans, Deuteronomy 6.4. It's called the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That is the foundation to everything the Jewish faith was built upon. It's called the great Shema because Shema means hear. Shema. Oh, Israel, and I probably just shredded the grammar of that horribly, but you get the point. Right. Hearing. It was all about hearing. Exodus 19.5, God said, Now if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Listen to that again for that word Shema, to hear. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. It was the word that we translate as obey. Because to hear, to genuinely hear, is to act. Samuel, hearing the voice of the Lord in 1 Samuel 3 said, Speak, for your servant is listening and ready to hear. Psalm 17, verse 6, God cries out, incline your ear to me. He wasn't talking about the physical position of the ear, but the attitude of the heart. Hearing, essential. Interestingly, Greek doesn't even have a word for obey. There is no word in the Greek language that translates directly as obey. There's two words that are most commonly used. The lesser of the two is the word to do. The more common of the word is to hear. To hear is to obey. The Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17, Mark 9, the voice said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. They could see him. He was standing right there. Listen to him. The prioritization of hearing. 
There's a connection between hearing and responding that connects the two languages and connects the two covenants. Three times in the letter to the Hebrews, the author's quote, author quotes the same part of Psalm 95. Three times in Hebrews we read this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me. The connection between hearing and the heart. Interestingly, unlike all the mystery religions that we already just finished talking about, which emphasize what people saw, both Old Testament and New emphasize what we hear, the priority of hearing. We're all familiar with the expression so-and-so, a hard of hearing, getting hard of hearing. Have you ever heard anybody described as being hard of seeing? Now, why do you laugh? Because it makes no sense, right? To describe somebody as, that can't see well as being hard of seeing, that makes no sense. Does that make any less sense than hard of hearing? No. That, that expression, although we use it commonly, is as nonsensical as hard of seeing or anything else. So I wondered, I wonder where that phrase came from. Interestingly, I you know, Googled it, like we always do. Uh, it shows up in its 14th century poem in Middle English about the history of the church, surprisingly enough. Um, and it used the expression heart of understanding. Well, I guess that didn't work because over the next two centuries, that expression morphed into heart of hearing. But the priority given to our hearing in our response, I think that's one of the reasons that worship is so important for us. We hear it and we remember it. The importance of hearing. Because when the truth is heard, there is a choice. Jesus spoke to the crowds they heard his words, and he said, now what are you going to do with it? Jesus is here saying to the disciples, since you have the capacity to hear, and you're presently hearing the truth, listen carefully. Give diligence to what you hear. Verse 24 is the real warning. He was saying to them, and again, that's that expression that means he was saying it a lot. This is a phrase he used a lot. Verse 24. He was saying to them, take care what you listen to. Now, he's not using that the way we as parents use it, talking to our teenage kids. You don't want to be listening to that bad music. Now, you can say that from Scripture, but this is not the place. This is saying something different. This is not saying, be careful that you don't listen to the bad stuff, although that's good advice. It's godly advice. This is saying, when you're listening to the good stuff, be careful that you're actually listening to it, that you are allowing it to enter your being. Show care, show caution as you read. Take care with what you are listening to, right? Pay attention. Make it the object of intense thought. Think about it. Remember it. Meditate on it. Contemplate it. Put it into practice. The point is that Jesus is giving to his followers, you're being given truth, he said, life-changing, eternal truth. Understand you're accountable for it. You'll be rewarded for what you do with it. Verse 24 continues, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Now, that's not talking about the standard by which we judge others, similar phraseology, that's someplace else. That's not what's being said here. We've all been given a measure of the truth. And that doesn't mean church impartiality, or truth impartiality, rather. We've been given a measure of truth in a different, a different capacities to understand it. If you'll forgive me, I'll use myself as an example. I have been incredibly blessed by God 
given unique opportunities to live in places, to sit under the teaching of magnificent teachers so that I can open up the New Testament and I can read it in the original language. And that's cool, and it scares the daylights out of me. Because I will give an account in eternity for the advantages I have been given. And if I do not use it well and wisely, if I, as it were, left it under a rock, I would answer for that. So we do well to listen carefully because we all have been given opportunities and experiences and insights into the truth that allow us to speak into people's lives. We've all been given opportunities. Yours are different than mine. But they're opportunities, insights, experiences you've been given. We would do well to use them. The good news is, verse 25, it's a great promise. For whoever has, to him shall more be given. Whatever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away. Whoever has, to him shall more be given. We're talking about our understanding of the kingdom. What we know and understand of our God, our Savior. What we know of the way things work in the kingdom. What we know of the values of the kingdom. To the extent that we're diligent in those things and pursue to understand God better through them, we'll be blessed to understand even more. I've been doing this for 40 years. Years ago, I had somebody um, ask me, um, as, as a pastor, what's, what's your primary resource? I said, the Bible. He said, look, what else? Um, that's pretty much it. You know, I have other things I use, but I, I always come back to the Bible. And I think I'd been in the ministry about 20 years by that point. And the guy said, you mean to tell me you've been preaching the same book for 20 years? Doesn't that get kind of like repetitive and boring? I said, you have no idea what you're talking about. No idea. You know, the, the more that we know and understand in Christ, the more we, the more we see of him, Right? And it's, it's a really bad analogy, but I think it makes the point. It's like he's one of those colossal statues, like a statue of liberty, that massive thing, right? And we're ants. And we're looking up at him in awe, trying to understand all that we can. You know where 40 years of doing that has got me? I proudly stand atop the toenail. <laughs> Much better view from the toenail than the ground, but it's still as far as I've gotten. Because there's so much of him to come to understand. But only as we diligently pursue it. If I had done a better job, I might be as far as like the shin or something. I don't know. To the extent we're diligent about taking these things in, truly hearing them, meditating on them, responding to them, we're not only blessed, but we're blessed increasingly. Conversely, if we neglect it, we can lose it all. Neglect is an indulgence we simply cannot afford. Here's the single point. If I could reduce it all to one simple statement, I would say this. Our relationship with God is never static. No one's relationship with God is static. We are never in a place where nothing is changing, nothing is happening. Things are always changing, always moving. Even if you can't see it, the seed grows. Look at the next parable. Just quickly, look at the next verse. He says in verse 26, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. He's still on that same thing. Cast seed upon the soil. 
And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts up and grows. How he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, the head, then the mature head and the grain. When the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. The whole process is a mystery, but it continues without ceasing. To the extent we open our hearts, our minds to him, pay attention to what we hear, he continues, he continues by the power of his spirit to produce his kingdom in us. Father, I thank you so much, God. That you just don't, you, know, you call us into, into a relationship of salvation where we have the hope of eternity. What a glorious thing that is, Lord. But to know at the same time, Father, as we simply incline our ear towards you, we take the smallest step towards growing in you, you respond and cause your kingdom to increase in us. We incro- you cause, Father, the character and the person of Christ to grow in us, Father. Father, we are, we are so privileged and this world is so desperate for people through whom your son lives, through whom your father speaks, Father, whom your son speaks the truth of eternal life, Lord. The world is desperate, Father, for people through whom you speak. Father, let us be those people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.